So the the rabbis discuss the the amazing uh, the amazing holiness of Yonasan ben Uziel, one of the greatest rabbis in history, who was a repository of all the secrets of the Torah. They say how one illustration of how great was he that uh, while he was learning, if a bird flew over his head, that it would be engulfed in flames. Right? That it, it wouldn't wouldn't survive. So they say, well. Well, was there anyone even greater? They say, yeah. Well, well, what would happen? That the bird would fly over that person's head and live. <laughs> right? So, so here we are, engulfed in flames, and yet we're all alive. We're all alive. So it's a, 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 different, kind of, a different kind of flame, a different kind of, you know, something that actually empowers you. It's something that, that, that fuels you, that gives you, that gives you life, you know? I was talking with this guy the other day, and I don't know what made me say this. We were kind of doing this very kind of intricate, laborious task. It was taking hours and hours and hours and hours, a computer animation thing, and honestly, weren't really making much progress to speak of. And I just, at one point, just said, I don't know what made me say this. I said to him, I said, you know, life is very beautiful. This world is very beautiful, but it's also very treacherous. You know, it's like, it's, it's hard to get it right. This is my opinion. It's hard to get it right, and it's really easy to get it wrong. You know? And if a person thinks that they can just sort of be on automatic pilot and just sort of like, kind of glide into the right path, or even if they're fortunate enough to sort of be gifted and to be given the opportunity to get into the right path, that they can actually stay on the right path. You know? That's, 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 these are very powerful and often uh, mistaken assumptions. It's, it's, it's a constant, it's a, it's like climbing a mountain. You know, you got to, stick that thing into the rock and then you pull yourself up and then you put it into the rock again and you pull yourself up and that's day by day hour by hour and that's that's what it is that's the reality of it you know um so 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 we're at a point in the torah right now and it's uh it's kind of a, a big turning point in the torah it's it's safer shmos also, also translated as the book of Exodus. And it has this um, kind of duality to it, because on the one hand, we're, we're now being sort of like acquainted with our, with our slavery. And it's a very bitter, horrible slavery. Mm. At the same time, one of the names of this book is Sefer Gu'ula. So while simultaneously we're learning about our total kind of just just the, the horror show that was going on, at the same time, the redemption is coming into the world. And you see this in a beautiful way. The very beginning of the of the of the of the book of Shmos is is that and these are the names of the children of Israel who are coming to Egypt. Okay, so there's a lot, there's a lot in that clause right there. That's not even um, the whole Pasuk. With Jacob, each man in his household came. Okay, that's the end of the verse. But let's just, just talk a little bit about the beginning of that. And these are the names of the children of Israel who were coming to Egypt. So, just two, two remarkable things about um, that. One is it says, why doesn't it say, and these are the children of Egypt, who, and these are the children of Israel who came to Egypt? You've got two, two variants there, which are very noteworthy. And these are the names of the Jewish people who were coming to Egypt. <laughs> Should be in the past tense, not the present tense. Also, you don't need to say these are the names, right? And even you can just say, this is who came to Egypt, <laughs> right? Why do you have to say the names? And the question is further compounded by the fact that we just reviewed these names not so long ago at the end of Breshis. 
So we're already acquainted with this information. So, like, just at the very, very opening, the very, very opening verse, not even till the end of the verse, we have a lot of questions going on. So I saw from the, um, I saw from the Chidush uh, a couple of, uh, for me, very beautiful points on this. So these are the names of the children of Israel. So the Medrash says that if you, if you actually look at the names, that, that each one of the names was a different, um, uh, this is my, this is my um, language that I'm using right now, each one of the names was almost like a different prayer for the Geula, for the, for the, for the salvation, okay? So Reuven uh, has the word to see in it, right? So, so it said that basically God saw our enslavement, right? Right? Shimon has a word like Shema, like to hear in it. God heard our cries. Okay? Now, what's, so each of the names, and the Medrash goes through each of the names and shows how each of the names is hinting at how, um, how there was salvation contained within the names themselves. And so we know that when God created the so let me try to explain this. So, so when God created the world, our, our tradition is on a mystical level, God, God took the letters of the olive bays and he combined them into the world. So, so each of the letters of the olive bays is like a different sort of like um, energy wavelength, if you will. So God sort of combined all these divine energies and sort of, you know, sculpt them like energy into matter, right? That's equals MC squared. God sort of like, this is like the, see, there's a lot of quantum physics actually in the Torah, but the, the rabbis didn't have our contemporary vocabulary to express these things. So, so the built into the, the world itself was the evolution toward the perfection of the world itself. In other words, in other words, built into the world itself was an engine that was going to continue to drive the world toward its own perfection. And of course, God didn't just plant it in the world and go away. God is guiding this process moment by moment. Okay? By the way, you see that very clearly right at the beginning of the Torah itself. It says, Bereshis, which is um, translated as, you know, in the beginning or with beginnings or out of beginnings. But anytime you make reference to the word beginning, you also have what? A middle and an end, right? The very fact that the Torah is beginning with the word, be- with the word beginning is telling you that, that, that there is a process that you are at the outset of that's going to unfold and take place. The Torah itself is telling you that. So you see, in the names of the tribes themselves was built in this redemptive energy, which is signaling the fact that we're going to go from slavery to to freedom, or that the world itself is going to go from imperfection to the time of Mashiach, to the time of perfection. So so the Chedush HaRim is saying that and these are the names of the children of Israel who were coming into Egypt. In other words, the name, it wasn't just the people themselves. The divine energy contained within these people, contained within these names, that divine energy entered into Egypt with the Jewish people. That energy of redemption was entering into Egypt with Klai Israel. That's, what it, that, that's why this is not extra words. These are the names of the children of Israel, right? Because that energy is entering also. Now, a different point, a different point now. By the way, I, I just want to make my own point on that, which is that, you know, I saw, I saw this point that, uh, that Sefer Breshis right, the book of Genesis is sort of focused on individuals. Whereas right now that we're entering into Shmos, into Exodus, we're really focusing on the birth of the nation. 
Okay, so it, it's a little bit it's a little bit different. So what's sort of intriguing is is that now that we're having these names, which we're very familiar with, Ruvain and Shuman and Levi and Yehuda, right now we're really thinking them more of them more as heads of tribes right now or tribes. Okay, even though technically in this context maybe they're still individuals, nonetheless we're really this is now the building blocks of the of the tribes themselves coming together as the nation. So, so, so the names themselves. What is the history of the names themselves? So I just want to talk about how this this idea that that redemption is being built into the names, right? In terms of us as a nation, right? So let's look at the origin of these names. All of these names were sort of like um, prayers, if you will, that Leah was praying that she should be closer to Yaakov, right? Because she she names her firstborn Ruvain, that God should see my, who's my? My is Leah, that that my, you know, sorrow or whatever the, the my pain regarding my relationship with my husband, Right by by the time it comes to like Shimon, then it's God should hear that I want to be closer, that I want this closer relationship. Uh, so, so whenever we're talking about um, the Jewish people in Hashem, we always have this model of chassan and kala, right? Bride and groom. That 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 the Jewish people, so to speak, are the bride, and God, so to speak, kaviyochol is. Is, is that is that male counterpart, and so so it's just it's just interesting that 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 the names of the tribes and the, and 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 each one of them here now is evolving into a prayer for the redemption of the people, but they were originally a prayer for the redemption of this married couple. <laughs> which is going back to the essential relationship between us and God, which is like bride and groom. In other words, so it's all, it's kind of different contexts, but it's all along the same spectrum, if you will. Okay. Now, the Chedush Arim says, how is it that we were able to survive in Egypt? Because we never acclimated ourselves to the fact that we were really... Egyptians. We never allowed ourselves to become Egyptians. So this is the idea of the present tense of the phrase here, because again, it should say, and these are the names of the children of Israel who came to Egypt, not we're coming to Egypt. So what is this idea? We're coming to Egypt. So in other words, the Jewish people had this mindset that we were always, so to speak, just arriving. Because if we're just arriving, then what is our identity? We're the people from Israel. So we're, we're Jews from Israel. And we're just coming. We're just arriving now. And that was our way to maintain our own separate identity as opposed to sort of completely acclimate and just basically nosedive into Egyptian culture. Because if we, if we arrived, then we were there, then we were Egyptians, then, nah. <laughs> I, I, I heard from my brother-in-law years ago, I, I, I liked it so much, this idea that, um, you know, it's a famous teaching that the Jewish people, by the time Moshe shows up, had reached the 49th level of impurity. Now, you know, you've got it on both sides. When we, when we leave Pesach and we climb toward Mount Sinai, climb toward the giving of the Torah, toward the holiday of Shavuos, you know there's 49 days. So we're going up and up and up and up, right, to the 49th level. So here we had reached the 49th level of impurity, right? And of course on the 50th day, on the other side, when we're climbing up, the 50th day we receive the Torah, right? So what would the 50th level be on the other side, right? So they say like total annihilation. Total annihilation. That if that if Moshe had shown up one minute later, the Jewish people would have been completely gone. 
Now, what does that mean, completely gone? Remember, we're trying to remember that, that in, our, in our minds, we were still coming to Egypt, right? Not that we had come to Egypt. We weren't Egyptians yet. So, so with that in mind, what's this idea of the, the 50th level? What if, what if he had delayed a little bit more? So, so I heard the following teaching that Moshe would have showed up and he said, okay, we're, okay, let's go. I'm here. We're going to do it. God's keeping his promise. What, what do you mean you're here? Who are you? God's keeping what promise? Well, we're going to take you out. To where? To Israel. Why? <laughs> In other words, that, that would have been the 50th level. Forgetting that you needed to be redeemed from something. That's, that's heavy, actually, if you think about it in your own life, because sometimes a person can get so comfortable with whatever state they're in, they forget that there's even, that there's even a state that they have to get out of. I remember in my own sort of spiritual journey, um, I had heard one time from someone, they said, they, they had said, you know what, set a minimum level or sort of like uh, like one one thing that uh, if you stop doing this Jewishly, whatever it is, if you stop doing this particular thing, that you know you're in trouble. And I remember thinking, um, well, one thing that I do, because I wasn't doing that much, I wasn't quote-unquote observant at the time. So there wasn't much I, I was doing in terms of practical observance. But one thing that I was doing since I was a little boy was saying Shema before I went to bed. You know, I would just say Shema Yisrael, you know, on my pillow. You know, via hafta was already very fancy. But just to say Shema was, to me at that point in my life, a level. And, you know, I would say that. And then I remember at a certain point, not so long before I started to become observant, by the way, at a certain point, I, I remember... Just it all of a sudden occurring to me, I've stopped saying Shema and I don't even remember when I stopped. And then I remember thinking, remembering what that person said, and I was like, wow, I've dropped below, I guess that's kind of the 49th and a half level, (laughs) you know, kind of in the 50th level because then you're gone. By the way, I'll tell you something very inspiring to me anyway, which is that I heard that there is no 50th level of impurity. <laughs> that no soul is ever lost. She can't ever be completely lost. Which I, I you know, I, I think that there's something very, probably very true about that, especially if we hold by this notion of the pintalayid, of this spark inside of a person that never goes away. How can you reconcile the concept of a pintaliyid and the 50th level of impurity? The two don't go together. They don't go together. Right? You can get 49.9999999999, right? Which would probably be a pretty dark place. But but 50, I'm not so sure. That, that seems to make sense to me, you know? So, so yeah. So Moshe shows up, and uh, and and there's there's what to work with. The the the, the people are the, the people are still there. I, I want to share something that I, I think is really amazing. I saw Rebbe Nachman point this out, um, which is that the opening words of Shmos, the Eli Shmos b'nei um, Yisrael. Habaim, uh, that if you take the last letter of those first of the, that opening phrase and you rearrange the letters, it spells the word Tehillim. <laughs> that interesting. In other words, it takes a lot of prayers, right? It takes a lot of prayers to get out. Okay, so now I want to discuss a whole another topic. And um, basically, basically, there's a Kabbalistic teaching that 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 I'm going to try to explain right now. 
and that I personally sort of wrestled with, but that's a side issue. But, but it's worth trying to go into and worth trying to explain. So it goes like this. Basically, the rabbis teach that the 600,000 souls, right, that get out of Egypt, the Jewish nation, right, that, that leaves Egypt, were basically reincarnations, were reincarnations of the generation of the flood and what we call the Dor HaFlaga, the generation of the Tower of Babel. And I guess I wrestled with that because I felt like, well, wait a second, you've got, here you've got the Jewish people, which is sort of like the birth of the nation, so to speak, like this very unique energy that's entering into the world. And there's something that I sort of like intuitively didn't like and sort of fought against. The idea that, wait a second, these are the generation from the flood and the generation of the Tower of Babel. These are not like brand new souls that are bringing this like tremendous new light to the world. These are the same souls that have been messing up. You know, what, what, how do you fit those two things together? You know, so I, this is just, I'm just talking to you on a personal level. Intuitively, I didn't like this teaching, you know. But, nonetheless, I had a different perspective on it, um, in, in thinking about it some more and learning about it some more. And um, let me just kind of take a few steps back, back to Adam and Eve and the Garden of Eden, <laughs> And we'll just do a, a quick sort of like progression and try to contextualize this teaching. And, and I think hopefully this, will, um, hopefully this will sort of add some clarity in terms of this giant project called humanity and the Jewish people and all the rest, okay? So the question that uh, many people asked, and I, I think, it's a, I think it's, a, it's a good question, I think it's an important question, is were Adam and Eve Jewish? Right? And the... I think that what, what, I'll give you my own understanding of this. I would say, no, they weren't Jewish. Because we know that Abraham and Sarah were the first Jews. Right? So if Abraham and Sarah were the first Jews, how could Adam and Eve be Jewish? But, in a way, it was irrelevant whether they were Jewish or not. And let me explain to you why. Because, again, we say that, according to the Talmud, God looked into the Torah and created the world. So we know that the Torah existed before the world existed. Adam and Chava also had two mitzvahs, to work and to guard the garden. Right? This is before eating from the tree of knowledge. The rabbis teach that to work and to guard the garden, one was a positive commandment, one was a negative commandment, and in those two commandments, all 613 commandments existed. So in other words... It doesn't matter whether they were Jewish per se, Adam and Chava. In fact, you could say that it was irrelevant because they were operating within the Torah and had mitzvahs from the Torah. Do you understand? So what, what you call them, what label you give them, is sort of beside the point. The point is, is that they're operating within the Torah itself and they have Torah obligations. Okay. So then what happens? The world gets more and more muddy, meaning to say the presence of God becomes increasingly abstract, idol worship becomes increasingly abundant, and now you have the generation of the flood. By the way, very interesting, there's a teaching that says that by the generation of the flood that they would plant one crop, right, and they would have a harvest that would last them for 40 years from that one crop, which is which just tells you that you have to keep yourself busy because they weren't working. <laughs> and so if you see how society devolved, you know, people find themselves more and more ways to say busy, right, which aren't necessarily positive. So you have to have things to do if you want to sort of keep it together, you know. Anyway, so, so you have the generation of the flood, and we know how that ends, right? And then you have the, the Tower of Babel. Tower of Babel is really interesting. You have this, the people build this giant tower. Why? Because the idea is that if another flood comes, they'll be completely insulated from the floodwaters. And it says something which is um, a little bit abstract, but it will make sense in one moment, 
that they built this high tower in order to wage war against God. Which sounds interesting, but what are you, you going to do? You're going to stand on top of a tower and swing your fists or shoot arrows? Like, that sounds very foolish. Like, what does that mean? They're going to wage war against God. But the idea is actually very deep. The idea is that they were going to assert their independence from God. In other words, if they were impervious to God being able to drown them with a flood or whatever it was, then their very independence or assertion of independence from God was waging war against God. Do you understand? Okay. So now, at this stage, remember, the whole world is made out of Torah. Adam and Eve are keeping the mitzvahs of the Torah, okay? At this point in history, God says, okay, we're going to try a different angle. <laughs> we're gonna, although you can say this was the plan all along. That's a completely different discussion. And God says, I'm going to bring about the birth of the Jewish people. I'm going to bring about an Avraham and a Sar. By the way, the word Ivri, we say Avraham Ha Ivri. Ivri means over. So, so, and a sort of like um, meat and potatoes level, you had the, the lands of the world, then you had this river, I don't know if it was the Euphrates or whatever it was, and on the other side of the river you had this person Avraham. Right? But, but they say deeper in terms of the Tower of Babel, because Avraham Avinu, Avraham was alive during the Tower of Babel generation, they say you had the entire world on one side of the, the, the moral compass and you had Abraham Ha'ivri on the other side of the moral compass. So in other words, you had one person who had an outlook on the world which was different from everybody else's in the entire world. It's a very, that, that's a deeper shot of what it means, Abraham Ha'ivri. It was on the other side. So what, is, what does that mean? That means in terms of morality, morality is not a democracy. Meaning to say, if you, you, you can say, okay, should we gas these babies? Majority wins. No, there's something called good and evil. There's something called morality that's objective. We would call it Torah. That's objective. And if you disagree with it, Mazel tov. It doesn't mean that it doesn't continue to exist. It's like the presence of God. You say, well, I don't believe in God. God still exists. It's very nice that you don't believe in him. But that doesn't cancel out his existence in the world or his existence for the implications of the life that you live. Right? So, so anyway, morality is not a democratic construct. Um, okay, that doesn't mean that it has to be wielded in a way that's unkind or obnoxious. It just means that there's a concept of truth in the world. That's all. So, So now, Avraham and Sarah are there in the world, and they're going to send this message to the world. They're going to be a light unto nations. They're going to basically raise the world back up to this clarity, this moral clarity of understanding the presence and the oneness of God. Okay? Okay. So that's how I always thought about it. It was a kind of a historical spectrum moving forward, starting with, Adam and Chava, then you have the generation of the flood, then the generation of the Tower of Babel, then you start again with Abraham and, and, and Sarah, and then moving forward, right, they're going to spread out a light that hopefully, you know, will culminate in the fixing of the world, or the completion of the world. Very good. Except, what about those earlier generations? <laughs> What about those earlier generations? So now we see something, I think, very beautiful, which is that, you know, when you say to sift or to dance, rikud, yeah, rikud. So there's, a, there's something nice. One of the, imagine like sifting, right? So you've got like something like, 
you know, with like tiny little holes and you've got, say, some flour in there and you shake it back and forth. So that's called sifting, right? And then just the finer pieces will come down and go to the, 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 uh, into the cup, say, or the bowl. But that little shifting, sifting back and forth, like the flour is moving around, reclute, that's called, it's the same word for sifting and dancing. Isn't that, isn't that funny? In, 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 in Hebrew, and the Chedush Rim says that when you dance, right, there's actually a spiritual sifting going on where you're kind of getting rid of your spiritual impurities through the dancing. So that's a, that actually works on a human being in terms of their own uh, avoda. As, as, as people know, there's a, there's a holy form of dancing that, you know, like, like if you ever come to the happy meeting, you'll see you, when, you, when you dance, it's, 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 that's why it's good to close your eyes when you're dancing because that, that form of dancing is a form of prayer. It's not just, okay, now I'm dancing, you know, because, hey, I love this song, you know. It's, it's, it can be that, but it's, it's more than that. It's more than that. There's a, this holy sifting going on. You're, 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 you're picking yourself up. Okay. So now imagine that this sieve, right, this, 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 this tool with the little holes in it, right, are Avraham and Sarah. And now imagine that all of the previous generations, the generation of the flood and the generation of the Tower of Babel, are now, now there's this sifting device that's been implanted into the world. And now these souls can go through this and have an opportunity to be born into the world with this proper, clear perspective. And now you have this 600,000 strong nation, which now has a level of clarity of these souls that it didn't have before. So, and now it can move forward and get the Torah and march toward Israel. This is, this is an amazing thing. This is an amazing thing. So you, you understand, just, just to be clear, what we're saying here now is that it's not like, here, here's, here's what we may have thought, and now we have a much deeper, much better answer to this. Here's what we may have thought. We may have thought that there was Adam and Chava, and they sort of blew it, and then, then comes the generation of the flood, and I gewalt, did they blow it? And then the Tower of Babel, you think you're independent of God? I. We, let's start really again. Let's just get Abraham and Sarah and let's just move forward as best we can. Right? That's how it may have sounded. Now what we're hearing is something very, very different. Now what we're hearing is now there's an apparatus in place so that as we move forward, in real time there's clarity because the Jewish people in their present time are sending a message to the world and the rest of the people in terms of working with clarity. And now there's a device that's been built into the world, namely the Jewish people, this nation of Israel, where the previous souls can now come back in and be, so to speak, given this new opportunity in order to perfect themselves. So it's working simultaneously moving forward in future and correcting the past. And now, with that in mind, let's revisit one of my favorite midrashim, and you can have a new, all of us can have a new appreciation for what it's saying. Remember, when it came time from Abraham Avinu to bury Sarah, they found the, the cave of the patriarchs, right? Mors Machpelah, and Abraham is carrying Sarah into the cave, and of course the Zohar says this is the entrance into the Garden of Eden, right? And it says that you know, as he's getting ready to bury Sarah, he's bringing her into the cave, that Adam and Chava, who are also buried there, Adam and Eve, dug themselves up and said, we're so, Sarah, or, or Chava says, I'm so embarrassed that I got us into this whole situation. And, 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 and that Sarah is going to be buried next to me. This, I'm, I'm embarrassed. And Abraham calms her and says, don't worry, meaning Abraham and Sarah, don't worry, we're here to fix it. So here you see now, again, remember what we've been talking about up until now. Abraham and Sarah are coming to fix Adam and Chava. 
But what we're adding now is we're realizing the depth of that because it's not just coming to fix Adam and Chava, it's coming to fix all the generations between Adam and Chava. Is there any uh, letter that you think is particularly connected to the to the burning bush in the Hebrew letter? Um, that's one question. Yeah. The second question yeah. is, uh, I noticed for the first time ever when I was reading uh, Parsha that it says an angel, that Hashem said an angel who became the burning bush. Mm -hmm. I never like, made that little connect, like, wow, yeah. what, is that, like, what, what was that about? And does, does this angel yeah. come back in different forms to become like a portal for us to connect to Hashem when we're davening, or how does that, yeah. you know? Yeah, it's interesting, yeah. Yeah, um, well, I, I don't know. I, I would say that uh, we definitely have an angel of fire. Mm. There's definitely an angel of fire. Mm. Uh, and and um, yeah, I'm sorry, I, I just I, I lost the thought. You said something else. Uh, Is there a letter? Yeah, it's like, what's a letter that you think yeah. particularly like, well, you the burning bush? Yeah, one, one, thing that's, um, one thing I would just add is that, is that, the, is that uh, the location of the burning bush is at Mount Sinai. Mm -hmm. I always think that's a, just a giant piece of the entire story of the book of Exodus that somehow mm -hmm. is just overlooked. And God says basically, um, you're, you're going to bring the entire Jewish people back here, meaning to Mount Sinai. Like everyone thinks that it's sort of like, okay, there's just this conversation between God and, and Moshe, and God says, go and re redeem the Jewish people. And then whole new, brand new separate idea that kind of comes out of the blue, let's bring them to Mount Sinai. And it, when you, it's so important to understand that the very, very, very beginning of the process started at Mount Sinai. The burning bush was at Mount Sinai. And then God says, and you're going to bring him back here. It was a round trip from Mount Sinai to Mount Sinai. It's so essential. It's so essential because, because to understand... To not understand it in that context is to reduce the importance of the giving of the Torah or what the Torah is to the Jewish people. You have to understand that the, the, the centrality of the Torah is that the process begins right at Mount Sinai. The entire story begins at Mount Sinai. It can't be overemphasized. Um, yeah, I, I, you know, the, the word sneh, um, be, it, for for the burning bush begins with the letter Samach. Mm -hmm. So um, Samach is that thing that surrounds you that kind of goes back to what we were talking about at the very beginning of the talk. Mm -hmm. But I, I would just comment on a different letter. It's a, on a slightly different subject which is the letter Shin. Shin is the first letter of Shmos. And um, Shin is interesting because it's got three prongs. And one of the commentaries on the three prongs is that they stand for Avraham, Yitzhak, and Yaakov, right? And it also kind of looks like a flame, doesn't it, Ashin? Yeah. So it's like this flickering fire. And the, the famously, the very first letter of Sefer Shmos is the letter Vav. And Vav means a connector. It means the word and. So... It's interesting that the, the whole book of the Torah is beginning, and, you know, so there's a lot of commentary. Why is it beginning with the word and, you know? So, I saw from the Orchayim that, um, that it's in order to connect these generations that are spoken about at the beginning of Shmos back to Avram Yitzhak and Yaakov, right? Again, that, that Shin. Avraham Yitzhak and Yaakov, the Shin of Shmos. So the very beginning of the Sefer is connecting them back. That just like Avraham Yitzhak and Yaakov were righteous, so were this first generation that entered into Egypt, very righteous, and we want that love to connect them. But it also feels like that that Shin is kind of like this holy fire, right? And that energy of the names themselves, the names are entering into Egypt, right? That holy fire of Avraham Yitzhak and Yaakov that energy is entering into Egypt along with the tribes as well. I have two questions. Yeah. 
points. Yeah. One is as you're talking about uh, how Sinai, yeah. you know, place, Hasnea Boer, talking about the place and yes. the importance of the place. Yeah. I feel the, the, the tension that is always built around a place which is a physical mm. thing and the confusion yes. that can arouse yes. as you try to have a connection to a physical place. And, you know, I was born in Eretz Israel and grew up in Eretz Israel. And, and it always brings me back. I always feel inside me these dual kind of feeling towards this place. Yeah. yeah the place, the physicality yeah. is substantial and at the core and, and is meaningful. And at the same time, there is always we need to be very cautious of how, what do we do with that? Yeah, okay, good. So I'm, I'm glad you brought that up because I think I may have miscommunicated, um, which is when, I'm, when I was really emphasizing the, 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 the place that, that, this, that the burning bush was at Mount Sinai, that the whole story begins in this place of Mount Sinai, I wasn't really talking about so much the physical location as, a, as, as, as much as the event of Torah itself. Because Mount Sinai is sort of synonymous with not just a physical location, but with, a, um, with what took place at that, at that location. And so that's really what I was trying to emphasize, not the geography, but the event of the, giving, of the centrality of the receiving of the Torah itself. That, 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 that's, that's why I was taking pains. But, but I can see how you could have heard something very different, and so I'm, I'm, I appreciate the opportunity to clarify. In fact, just to build on what you're saying, right? we don't know exactly where Mount Sinai is. There's different theories, right? Some, I think the current ones, they're saying it's in Saudi Arabia, right? That's one opinion anyway. I have no idea. I have no idea. And then we have the Sinai Desert, right? Which is, you know, now Egypt has it, right? In the south. We don't know where Mount Sinai is. And one of the reasons why we don't know, we know where the Har Habayat is. We know where the Beis HaMikdash was, is, right? Was, is, right? Why, why, why don't we know where Mount Sinai is? That's a very deliberate choice that God made because it wasn't to be about a physical location. However, now let me switch tacks for a moment. Imagine I want to, I have a piece of chicken, right? And I put it in a pot and I fill it with some water. I'm going to make some chicken soup, right? And I take the pot and I put it on a chair. And I leave the, the house for four hours and I go, oh, I can't wait for this delicious chicken soup. And I come back and there's no chicken soup. It's just, <laughs> just a chicken sitting in a pot on a chair. Why? Because I didn't put it in the right place. <laughs> place counts for something too. The right place is on the fire. It has to be on the fire. That's the right place. A place can't be dismissed. It has its importance. See, if you imagine the globe right? Just imagine the planet Earth. There's an energy sphere, if you will, in this place that we call the land of Israel. That's, if you will, the, the fire, right? That's just an objective truth. It's not a, it, it gets overlaid with nationalistic sensibilities. But beyond the nationalistic sensibilities, there's an objective truth that that is an energy sphere of holiness and connection between heaven and earth. And that, so it has an importance beyond, almost like practical importance, beyond a, um, an emotional importance. And, and the Jewish people have something that they uniquely can accomplish there. Like if you can imagine a plug 
being put into a socket. Something happens with that, with that arrangement that wouldn't happen if I were to say stick a pencil in the socket. Something unique is happening between the Jewish people and the land of Israel. I mean, just to give you an, a more objective take, since that sounds all very mystical and yes. theoretical and religious, whatever. But how about the fact that the prophet says that when the Jewish people are not in the land, the land is not going to bloom at all. It's going to remain a wasteland. And how about the fact that that remains true for 2,000 years until the Jewish people come back and all of a sudden... The desert is blooming. How is, what is that? So, you know, again, no one will believe any of these things unless you are open to believing them. Unless, you know what I'm saying? But there are certain objective criteria that you could point to which shows this unique relationship between the Jewish people and the land. I'm not sure what the question is. So, you, so you said that you said Adam and Eve yeah. were not, and then right. Adam but uh, they were not. But it's almost irrelevant because they were functioning as Torah personalities. Do you understand? Uh, yeah. Because they had two. Because we say God made the world out of Torah, and we say that they had two mitzvahs to work and to guard the garden which contained all of the mitzvahs. So in other words, they were functioning as mitzvah-keeping individuals. It didn't really matter whether they had the label of Jew or not Jew at that point because the, the, their core relationship with God in reality was active in terms of their Torah relationship with the world and God. Was that point clear? Yeah, but I guess then, in, in the context, why then use it? <clears throat> why then use what? That. Differentiate the two. Because we say that Abraham and Sarah were the first Jews. So then how do you... Why and how and yeah, yeah. what sense does that make? So then... Then you'd have to listen to what I said. Because <laughs> <laughs> that would take me another 20 minutes to, to repeat it. Um, yeah, redeem and redemption. Two words that I'm not crazy about, by the way. They sound very Christian to me for some reason. You know, um, not that there's anything wrong with that, but it just doesn't do it for me. Um, basically, the world is evolving toward perfection. The process of the world evolving toward perfection is called redemption. That's it. It's not a big one, but, you know, just, uh, my friend I was I'm studying with told me something very deep that I would yeah. want your thoughts on that yeah. I think connects to uh, yeah. a lot. Uh, he said that, really, that uh, Judaism as a whole from the 1800s became very intellectual, very focused on uh, Bina. And he said that the Baal Shem Tov and uh, some of his followers really were about uh, bringing the imagination back. In, and like we needed to rebalance, like we have all this incredible mm -hmm. intellectual power of Bina, we need yeah. Chokhmah back in, and kind of this rebalancing. So I was wondering, uh, I'm very much into the imagination and art yeah. and stuff, so I was curious yeah. about just one or two thoughts on, on that concept. Yeah, you know, um, so I once heard, probably said by a, a Hasid, because it, this definitely makes the Hasidic point of view look much more attractive, but, and I'm paraphrasing it, but they, they, they say that, you know, without using any names, there are certain people who's that, who have a relationship with the Shulchan Aruch, meaning that's the code of Jewish law, which is a book. So they basically, they experience God through this relationship with this book, which has a series of do's and don'ts. Whereas, um, say, someone who has a more, say, Hasidic point of view, again, this is, I'm sure, said by Hasidim, is, has a relationship with, with God. <laughs> So you can have a relationship with a book or you can have a relationship with God. You know? So what did what did Hasidus do as a movement? Just we're widely generalizing here. But 
just socioeconomically, what had happened was the Jewish people had come, become pretty, pretty stratified. A lot of this was due to dire poverty. Just we were so horribly poor for hundreds of years. I mean, it was really eked out a miserable existence. I mean, you know, it's so funny that people think, oh, Jews are rich. If you look at Jewish history, Jews have been like horribly poor, horribly poor and oppressed for most of our history. And um, um, you couldn't, there weren't the communal resources to sort of like feed and, and support a whole team of Tamidi Chachamim, of scholars who are just going to sit and learn all day. You know, in fact, uh, the, it's, it's instructive to know that the sages of the Gomorrah, which are considered these, like, almost like angels, like they were giants upon giants, like Rabbi Yeshua was a blacksmith. So he was doing all of this while he was blacksmithing, you know? So, so, so but anyway, it got to a certain point where basically... The, the best of the best of the best, the top geniuses were supported, which were few and far between by the community, and everybody else was chopping wood and carrying water and, and just trying to eke out a living. And so there was this like um, great imbalance where it's sort of like, it was considered those people who are getting to learn Gomorrah all day, they have a relationship with God, and us people who are hanging out in the forest and just chopping wood all day, we don't. And so along comes the Baal Shem Tov who expands people's consciousness and realizes that God is absolutely all around you wherever you go. And if you're not learning, say, in front of a book, you can be talking to God and you can be praying. Right? And that that was as good or perhaps even better. Right? So, so this kind of like expanded the imagination and sort of like you know, reacquainted people with what the actual reality of God was in their own life and their own day-to-day existence as well. So this was a this was a huge giant revolution in terms of not just um, practice like okay, I'm Hasidic, I do it this way. You're not Hasidic, you do it that way. No, it was a revolution in consciousness. Yeah. Huh? Um, I'm going back to something you said about Abraham. Yeah. Ha'ivri. Yeah. And he spoke about Ma'avar, yeah. ever. Yeah. It's also past Ma'avar. Mm-hmm. And it, it worked so beautifully with what you said in terms of uh, Avram's and Sarah uh, were going forward and passing, repairing the previous generation. And that's the past. Mm, nice. And the past is very interesting for us, yeah. the Jews. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. So because we, we get to we get to revisit it. We get to revisit it. If you have a very sort of linear notion of time, yeah. the past becomes cut off to you. But in terms of our way of seeing the world, the past is still uh, pretty much on, on many levels an open book to us. So it's it's very different relationship with the past that we have because it's still alive in, in a very critical way in our own lives in terms of what we need to fix, previous lifetimes, previous generations, all sorts of things. <laughs>